Hello and welcome to Step Into Light. I'm Michelle Jones and I have with me my very favorite partner in crime, Ryan Jones. Although it's been a while since we've had any crime in our repertoire, mostly parenting, which is a different sort of adventure, wouldn't you say? Indeed. (laughs) Okay, so this week we are covering in the Come Follow Me chapters 26 through 30. And we have one more chapter of Isaiah. And the other chapters are Nephi's words. I was noticing at the start of this in the section heading um, that we're looking at 559 to 545 BC. So this is a solid like 60 years. If I'm doing, am I doing my math right there, Ryan? Yes. 60 years since they have started this journey into the wilderness. So even if Nephi was a very young man when they left Jerusalem, he is definitely into his older years here at this point. So we are being taught by him. And in this chapter, he's speaking a lot of when Christ comes to visit the Nephites after his crucifixion, and also sort of shares more of the things that are gonna be happening here on the American continent. So we'll just start off in verse one of chapter 26. After Christ shall have risen from the dead, he shall show himself unto you. So this is something that Nephi was aware of and that he taught to his children and their children and that this was a truth, a teaching that they knew and clearly understood to look forward to. It seems like in many ways the Nephites actually had a better handle on that the Savior would come and what that coming would look like than the Jews did who were in Israel or in that area. So that I, I think that's interesting. So then in uh, verse three, he talks about, you know, at the day when they come, if we remember, you know, he's foretelling what's going to happen when the Savior comes, like just proceeding when he comes, there's going to be the three days of destruction and darkness. And he says in verse three, great and terrible shall that day be unto the wicked for they shall perish. And they perish because they cast out the prophets and the saints and stone them and slay them. And moving down to chapter five, um, they that kill the prophets and the saints, the depths of the earth shall swallow them up, saith the Lord of hosts. And mountains shall cover them and whirlwinds shall carry them away and buildings shall fall upon them and crush them to pieces and grind them to powder. So this is very visual. Nephi is giving his family like this very visual, um, easy to picture outcome that's going to happen for the people who don't follow the prophet. Um, And so, I don't know, I always think it's interesting that we tie in, I think we talked about this when we met before, how we tie in, like the destruction is juxtaposed right next to the grace and the mercy and the loving kindness of God. It's very interesting that we live in a world that has these like, there's a tension between them and both are present, both aspects of choice. Yeah, and, and, and here he's just being very clear what happens when when people reject the prophets and, and thereby reject the Savior, that, that the law really is not going to be held back forever, that the consequences of that, and when the and when that comes crashing down, here's what it looks like, and it's just really bad stuff. Ultimately, the worst thing is, is being cut off from, from the presence of God and kind of having that spiritual death, but that the physical manifestation is very symbolic of, of that, and it's very real too, but it's uh, definitely, I, I would see that it's definitely being more symbolic of what a spiritual death looks like, and, and the destruction, the, the the pain, the the terror that's involved in that. And, and you contrast that with, yeah, the Savior coming, which is supposed to be a really good thing. Right. So it can be a good thing and a bad thing all at the same time, depending on your personal circumstances and where you stand with the Savior. I was going to say, depending on what side of the line you're standing on, whose team have you been playing for might affect what your experience is at that day. Um, I love how you said that some of those consequences, they will no longer be held back. And I think it's interesting here in our mortal experience, it's easy to see that consequences don't come immediately after actions. If they do, then we would 
probably be a lot quicker to learn some lessons, but there's often sort of a lag time where we can look around us or even in our own life and recognize how sometimes that there's a delay between our behavior and then the consequence of it. But eventually the consequence is connected to the choice. Well, here, here we're, we're in the promised land. The promised land is a land of, uh, of freedom and that freedom, I think a lot of what Nephi will be talking about is connected to things that happen when you have a free people and who become kind of separated from, from God and from the Savior. And then what are they going to do with that freedom? And what really? are they going to do? So, But that freedom allows them to have some space of time to exercise that freedom. And, and, the, and the judgments... If the judgments were to come right away, it wouldn't be freedom. I I think that's a really profound point. I like that a lot. Like, I feel like we should have a moment of silence, but that might get awkward on the podcast, so we won't. But I really like it. And, you know, it's interesting. Nephi's explaining and all of this. I mean, this is so similar to what we are prophesied about the days just before the Savior comes to the earth for the second time. What Nephi's sharing now is when he comes to the earth in the meridian of time, immediately after his crucifixion. And he's talking about that although there will be people that will be be, be part of this destruction, there will also be people, I'm going to move to verse 8, that are going to be looking forward to the Savior. And he says... But look forward, so giving counsel to these future generations that are several hundred years in the future still, look forward unto Christ with steadfastness for the signs which are given, notwithstanding all persecution, behold, they are they which shall not perish. So I really love this principle that Nephi's teaching us because with, I mean, I think this is true in our day as well, but specifically with this group of people that were going to be there on the earth when the Savior came, that the stakes are really high. <laughs> like either you will be there gathered at the temple and have this like lovely beyond words experience, or you're going to be crushed by the very mountains, right? Like th those are pretty high stakes and failure has a disastrous outcome. It would be easy to feel overwhelmed and discouraged, but Nephi is giving really clear and specific counsel, look to the Savior consistently. And part of this, I was pondering as I was reading this, that recognizing the Lord in the details of our life is part of that looking toward the Savior. Because sometimes it seems like we have to wait for these big events in our life to look for him and to stay, like keep, keep our focus there, but that we can turn to him and place our trust in him each day. And not only this, but like actively look forward to the day when our creator and of and our redeemer will come again. Like it's not casual. Nephi is te teaching them to be steadfast. So you know that I'm a word nerd. So I looked up steadfast, resolute, unwavering, determined, faithful, and loyal. So that's how we find our security. So I really just appreciated that concept that not only are we giving counsel what to do, but it's okay to look forward to it and be excited about it. So then we are going to move in verse 10. There's just this tiny little phrase that I love of Nephi's when he's t talking about this destruction. He says, I have seen it. And I, I love that just reminder that this is a prophet that is talking to us. He has seen what is yet to come. So now we have... Um, in verse 11, he's teaching about, you know, there's going to be these generations that are in tune with the Savior, the Spirit strives with them. But he says in verse 11 that there will come a time when the Spirit of the Lord will not always strive with man. And when the Spirit ceaseth to strive with man, then cometh speedy destruction. Verse 12, Jesus is the very Christ. Verse 13, he manifesteth himself unto all those who believe in him by the power of the Holy Ghost. And so I'm stopping there in the verse to say, I just felt to share my own personal experience and my, 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 my testimony that that has been true for me. Like there, there have been many years that it was very challenging to connect to the Savior so personally 
I mean, I was doing a lot of the right things. I was checking all the lists off that I could possibly do. And it still felt a lot more theoretical than experienced. Like I understood what the process was, how things should work. And yet I felt like more of that disconnect. So I, I was pondering what made the difference for me. And I recognized that at first I had some brokenness from unhealed trauma. So that's just like part of the equation. But one of the ways that that made it challenging, I think, to connect is that I felt really restless and I had a hard time being still. And I think there's a key ingredient there in stillness. Like I felt like my attention was often split and it was really challenging to meditate with the Lord. So interestingly, Ryan, I know that you've had an experience this last year with mindfulness as well. There's many words, right, that we can use when we talk about mindfulness. Different people refer to it differently. It can even just be a form of prayer, but it can be many things. But I found it to be a really key when we go back to this verse that he, the Savior, manifests himself into all who believe by the power of the Holy Ghost. For me, like finding that time to be still and to really like focus my body, my mind, my spirit all together toward the Savior was really important in that. Yeah, I was, I was, I was thinking about how here he kind of is talking about a future event, but some of the phrases make it seem more like in the present tense. Yes. And that the Savior, um, and so sometimes we, like today, we think about like the second coming or that we'll see the Savior after we die. And that's kind of always something in the future. And at times it's challenging to know how that connects to the present because you have all your right. day-to-day challenges and, and things you have to do. And, and uh, but it's just very beautifully written that he, he manifests himself and all those who believe in, in him. And that there really isn't a, a tense, a verb tense around that. And that we can kind of have a, an intimate relationship with the Savior in the present moment. And that we don't have to be so concerned about what the future looks like and what that future manifestation or that future, look, what that future looks like. We can just enjoy the present and the relationship we have with the Savior here and now. And, and I, re, I like very much remember when all of that came together for me, recognizing that I had permission to reach out to have an intimate relationship with the Savior now, that that wasn't something that was reserved as an ultimate reward at the end of my mortal life, right? That I have to just like keep slugging away here without any of that sweetness here. And it was a really transformational idea for me that I had permission to pursue that, that that was something within my birthright as a, as a daughter of God, that that was something that I could pursue and have. Um, he says also in the end of 13 that um, he will manifest himself working mighty miracles, signs and wonders among the children of men according to their faith. And... I have seen these type of miracles unfold in my life, in the life of people around me. And it's interesting, although miracles can come in many different ways, they can be very physical and obvious for many people to see. But I think so often the most um, intimate miracles that we experience with the Savior are is what happens like within us, within our soul, because we are transformed because of his grace. and not to underestimate that that is still a miracle that we are able to have that transformation or that connection maybe is the word I'm looking for more than transformation. Like it's a miracle that we can be connected to our God and to our savior. Yeah. I think even though we're very imperfect, we're in a very fallen state and we continually struggle with our mistakes and weaknesses. And yet we can still have such a relationship. 100%. Okay, so I'm going to skip down to verse 15. And we have, um, he speaks about the words of the righteous shall be written. So we're talking about scriptures here. And the prayers of the faithful shall be heard. 
and all those who have dwindled in unbelief shall not be forgotten. And I love these reminders that Nephi gives us for the mercy that we see when it comes to um, when it comes to not being forgotten. I think that it's easy because the timing of the Lord here on this mortal plane is sometimes so hard to like we can't see it and time for us feels like it weighs much heavier for us than I think it does when we're not bound by the veil and by this mortal experience. And so to be reminded that we are not forgotten, I, I really am thankful for that reminder. And in, in the, in the top of that verse, it's inter- that whole verse is interesting because in the top he says, and after, after my seed and the seed of my brethren shall have dwindled in unbelief mm-hmm. and shall, be, shall have been smitten by the Gentiles. And, and that word dwindled is probably Nephi partly trying to instruct that unbelief is something that kind of creeps in and it's something that um, uh, it's a process over time that people kind of spiritually wither or there's some atrophy there. But then at the, but you highlighted the second part of the verse and that is they shall not, they shall not be forgotten. So it's almost like Nephi sees his his people fall kind of fall away and, and he sees what ha- he sees what what happens to them and he's kind of given this assurance that they will not be forgotten and that's it's it's beautiful because in some ways that applies to each one of us each one of us kind of struggles and maybe we all have our the maybe we each have our things that we struggle with as far as faith goes and we have some degree of of unbelief in certain areas but no matter what uh, we're not forgotten yes it's very tender it's very tender i love that okay we're going to talk about satan for a little bit because he causes a lot of trouble for people here on earth and so i'm moving down to verse 22 and we hear and i might be wrong but this seems like one of the first times we're talking about secret combinations in the book of mormon he says there are also secret combinations even as in times of old works of darkness yea and he leadeth them by the neck with a flaxen cord until he bindeth them with his strong cords forever so i i was thinking many of the ways that satan carries out his work is some version of forsaking our agency And ironically, many people head down these paths feeling very much that they are freely leaving behind all restrictions that, you know, they see the laws of God as being very restrictive. And so they enter these paths, I think, in pursuit of freedom. And it's ironic because one of Satan's deceptions is that when we turn away from God, we're stepping into more freedom. But it's actually like the worst kind of pernicious lie. Like that is not in any way true. Because step by step, Satan desires to deceive us into giving our agency and choices to him. And it may take the form of like addiction, pride, distraction, hardness of heart. So that imagery of, it's sort of like how you were talking about dwindling. It's not an abrupt change. This is part of the sneakiness of Satan that, you know, it starts with this flaxen cord, which can easily be broken. One little strand of that, right? We can break that. But when it's bound again and again and again, it becomes um, a strong cord that is very difficult to break. And I, I think one of, especially being in a, in, a, in a free country, in a free land, both like um, today and back in Nephi's time, and, you kind of, and looking back on verse 20 a little, uh, uh, and it says, And the Gentiles are lifted up in the pride of their eyes and have stumbled because of the greatness of their stumbling block. And so I think that that freedom in itself kind of easily plants the seed that we have to wrestle with. And, and, the, and the seed is, um, the, the seed is that I can do things, that it's really me, that, that I have freedom to do things. I can look at... Um, well, it's interesting because in some ways we're just as free when we're obeying God's law as when we're not, because we're still freely choosing it, 
we're just choosing what we're aligning ourselves with in many ways. And part of it's where like our attitude is, is do we, do we kind of fully acknowledge or in, in even partially acknowledge the, the, the utter reliance we have on God and the Savior? Or do we think it's ourselves that are that's doing this? And I think that's what's highlighted in verse 20, the, the pride. Mm. You know, and it's a good reminder in verse 23, Nephi tells us, The Lord God worketh not in darkness. He doth not anything, save it be for the benefit of the world. For he loveth the world, even that he layeth down his own life, that he may draw all men unto him. Wherefore, he commandeth none that they shall not partake of his salvation. Which is an interesting, right? You've got the double negative there. But I do appreciate how that's worded. There's nobody that he has said that you can't come and partake. That is available to everybody. And he says, doth he cry unto any, saying, depart from me? Behold, I say unto you, Nay, but he saith, Come unto me, all ye ends of the earth. And I love that imagery and that reminder. I just think it's amazing. And then to finish out that verse, Buy milk and honey without money and without price. And so it's really contrasting with the how the world operates versus what the Savior is trying to teach, that it's freely available is it and it doesn't work like how true i mean of the world i mean it, if you imagine the incredible value of what the savior offers to us if which there's not but hypothetically if there was some earthly thing that could bring that level of value to you it would be like there would be a huge cost expected from the person who wanted that for themselves right and yet the savior I think you're right. It's exactly flipped on its head from how we would address that here on earth. That immediately he just offers freely. That's it. Because he loves us. Because we are his brothers and his sisters. That's there for us. And the thing that stands between us and that is our own our own pride is the ultimate thing that gets in the way. Because we think we don't need it. Is that part of what you see there as being that part of that pride? Um, okay, verse 28 um, is just a little bit more of that, but I'm going to read it because I just love this wording and this reminder that the Lord is here extending this to us always. Behold, hath the Lord commanded any that they should not partake of his goodness. Behold, I say unto you, nay, but all men are privileged, the like one unto the other. So I love that reminder that there... It, that concept that God is no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter if your family was a pioneer or not. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is or what nation you're from, that all men and women are privileged one like unto another. We all have that opportunity. Okay, at the very end of this chapter, and this is the chapter that I really had them like most, we'll be able to move through these other chapters more quickly, but... In verse 33 of chapter 26, um, speaking of the Lord again, he doeth nothing save it be plain unto the children of men. And he invited them all to come unto him and partake of his goodness. And he denieth none that come unto him, black and white, bond and free, male and free, male and female, all are alike unto God. This is just a beautiful testimony from Nephi. He's teaching his people and teaching us really the nature of God. This is the nature of God. And that beginning part when I was reading, he doeth nothing save it be plain unto the children of men is a nice reminder that if anything feels very confusing, that that is not coming from God. God is very clear, very direct. There's a lot of clarity with the things that he teaches. Okay, so let's move over into chapter 27. I really appreciated, and I don't know why, but I thought it was really interesting. We're talking about um, the apostasy uh, quite quite a bit here and then leading into the restorations. That's the overview of what we're talking about here in this chapter. But at the end of verse one, he says, they will be drunken with iniquity. And I thought that was such an interesting way to describe it. So I'm gonna put my nurse brain on for a second and say, when you are drunk, physiologically your senses are dulled you have a decrease in your responsiveness our perceptions are blurred it takes away our ability to think clearly right it just makes us less 
responsive, less clear. Um, so, and oh, and I forgot to mention that this is an Isaiah chapter comparing to Isaiah 29. So Isaiah is teaching us here that sin can have the same effect on our eternal spirit. So as we make choices contrary to God, our spiritual senses become dull. Even our perceptions and thoughts become distorted without the anchor and clarity that comes from writing in the spirit. So I just enjoyed that phrasing there to be drunken with iniquity. So the next part, we're talking here about all the nations that will fight against Zion in verse three. It shall be unto them even as unto a hungry man which dreameth and behold, he eateth, but he awaketh and his soul is empty. Now, Ryan and I both have, we, we often think it's unlucky. We both have very vivid dreams, right? That sometimes when you first wake up, you feel like, did that really happen or no? Was that just part of my dream? So I could really empathize. There were several examples of this where you dream that you're so hungry and you eat in your dream and then you wake up and you're not filled, you're not satisfied. And so there's several of these kind of analogies, but you know, Satan creates some pretty powerful illusions for people, for what they think they're getting, for what they think will make them happy and satisfy. He's pretty masterful at it. And and in that... And, and, and he's masterful at it, as, you know, and as long as the spirit is suppressed, the illusion is real. Oh, that's a good <laughs> And then point. When, when the awakening happens is when the spirit all of a sudden realizes, what am I doing or what's going on or finally like uh, surfaces, resurfaces, then that awakening happens. But as long as the spirit's suppressed... The person probably doesn't even know it's a, it's a quote, dream. Right. That it's literally our spirit is slumbering through the experience. And so we don't have that clarity to, to like, see it for what it is, really. And for seeing it for what it is, like, in the eternal scheme of things, like, the spirit is what's eternal, not, not our body. And so um, all, all dreams <laughs> will end, even if it... Goes all the way up to when somebody dies. At some, everybody will be awoken to the sense of of uh, the illusion that they or the lies that they had kind of got sold on. And I love that we're getting this seed planted because I felt like at, at, in the very last chapter, this um, phrase to see things as they really are or things as they really are was something that really stood out to me in that chapter. And I feel like we're getting like the foundation for that right here. Um, okay. So now we're going to trans transfer. We're talking more about the restoration, which will bring the earth that has fallen into apostasy up out of darkness in verse 11. Um, we are taught through the book of Mormon, all things shall be revealed unto the children of men, which ever have been among the children of men. Like, that's pretty fantastic. Really, like, these prophets, they see more than just their time. So when we have the Book of Mormon or the writings from the New Testament prophets or, or apostles, we are not just getting, like, a journal entry for what they personally experienced, but they have been given these grand visions to be able to see things from the beginning to the end. And so what they teach, they teach with that as part of their foundation. So I really thought that that was a good reminder. And then verse 23, um, I am a God of miracles and I will show unto the world that I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. Verse 25, for as much as this people draw near unto me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear towards me is taught by the precepts of men. Therefore, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people. So he's seeing all of these people that, you know, they, they're expressing a belief in God or they're kind of aligning themselves with some of these principles, but it sounds like almost more out of fear than out of like love or true understanding. And because that that's part of why this marvelous work of the restoration came to pass, because there was a big discrepancy between just checking off the list, so to speak, compared to actually being connected to the savior, how we spoke about earlier. 
Well, people may have been... Uh, another way of interpreting this is that people were trying to figure out how to both have some sense of spiritualness to God and to be part of the world and to figure out how to get worldly things. And when push comes to shove, you just can't have both. You can't serve both God and mammon. <laughs> and that when you try to do that, ultimately um, uh, you give lip service to things that are spiritual and you kind of give your energy and your effort towards the worldly things. Which is, I mean, when I think of that, I think of that as hypocrisy, right? Oh, absolutely. Like like that this is a version of hypocrisy. It's interesting. I've noticed that the up up and coming generation of the church seems to have much less tolerance for hypocrisy. And so I think it's really interesting. It'll be interesting to see how that unfolds, that drive for authenticity that they have, that I've seen in a lot of the youth, that they that our children and other people can tell the difference between lip service and hypocrisy and a genuine devotion. So in chapter 28, we are going to, um, so this is Nephi again, speaking to us and talking about now we've moved on to the last days. We're talking about, um, all of the different things that may come. And this very famous verse saying in verse seven, there shall be many which shall say, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die and it shall be well with us. And this feels like, I totally understand why Nephi wrote this for our day. This this feels like a very common sentiment. Um, you know, what a missed opportunity, really. Like, obviously we understand that there are consequences for our choices. But when I think about this attitude of eat, drink, and be merry, like, yeah, what does it matter? We're just going to kind of do stuff. And if I want to learn or, you know, if I want to develop spiritually, there's eternal progression and I can just keep doing that. But it's really like a, a missed opportunity to think about from the time that the plan was unfolded to us to come to earth and our time came on earth, like we waited for that time. Like we have been waiting for this moment, for this time to be here on earth in a mortal body to develop and refine ourselves in a way that is that seems to be like uniquely possible in a mortal experience. This seems to be a very critical sort of laboratory for refining ourselves. And Satan's first choice is probably to get us to fight against God. Like that would be his first choice. Let me just get everybody to like get get out in their armor and battle against God. But if he can't convince us of that, he'll happily get us to just waste all of our time here and not accomplish what we came here to do and to lose our chance to gain that refinement and purification that we really were like waiting for as we came. Yeah, yeah, this chapter is interesting because it kind of addresses some different groups and different attitudes. And on the eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, the, the, the irony is, is you read it thinking about physical death, that you will eventually die and, and you know, you'll figure out whatever's next then. Kind of a very short-sighted uh, way of looking at it. But you can read it a little bit differently and say, well, for tomorrow we uh, spiritually die or, mm. or today we're spiritually dying and it will not be well with us. But so, so there's definitely a very, uh, uh, there's a contortion there of, of what's actually happening. Oh, it's a total distortion in perception. People think that this is, this is the, the, I think it's the lie that people comfort themselves with. Well, there, there, there's several different lies in this chapter, and this is one that appeals to uh, certain people. It's kind of like God puts you on this earth, and you might as well figure out how to make the most of it and live it up. True. I mean, it's easy to see the appeal in that, right? Oh, yeah. Um, verse 14 is another version of this. It's talking about wearing stiff necks and high heads. They are led, at the end of this verse, they are led that in many instances they do err because they are taught by the precepts of men. So I thought about in this information age, there are many ways to satisfy our curiosity and our desire to understand. 
We literally, more than any other time in history, we have our agency to choose where to turn for knowledge and counsel. Like we're not just reliant on prayer. Like if you think of how reliant Lehi and his family were as they're traveling through the wilderness or on the boat in the middle of the ocean, they're pretty reliant on God to move them forward in the right direction. But I think it's easy in our day with Google just like a fingertip away on our smartphones that we carry around with us, that it's easy when we are curious or we want to know or understand something to get into the habit of feeling like we're pretty self-reliant in just finding out everything that we need. So, you know, why do we need to turn to God to understand how things work? So that is, as you were pointing out, some of the different ways. Those were the two that stood out to me. I don't know if another one stood out to you, Ryan, but... Those well, were... Like verse 15, it says, Oh, the wise and the learned and the rich that are puffed up in the pride of their hearts and all those who preach false doctrines. Um, but yeah, it's easily to become... Pride kind of comes in many forms and just kind of that whole sense of self-reliance and... Um, feeling like we don't need God is very much a, a prideful thing, even if it's so easy to do in this day and age. Right. Like, I think that that's one of the unique challenges of our time, that we have, you know, these different choices. Um, in verse 19, I appreciated this reference in the previous chapter. We talked about these flax and cords that could bind us, but we talk about the devil will grasp them with everlasting chains. Well, that's a pretty strong visual that I don't want to get myself in that situation. And verse 20, he, meaning the devil, will rage in the hearts of the children of men. And I thought that was a really interesting descriptor for what Nephi is observing here because raging in the hearts of the children of men, that there, there's a lot of passion and a lot of anger or I don't know that it's not that maybe this is yet one other way that Satan works with people if he can't get you to say yeah we're just gonna make the best of stuff don't worry about it we'll figure it out in the next life it's fine like the opposite of that is for Satan to be allowed really to rage within you so that you're passionately opposing what God is trying to direct and I'm sure that that rage starts with uh uh being angry at other people but then meaning at the world and fairness at, at what other people have done to you or what people are doing to each other and then how quickly that turns into disillusionment with god somehow that gets projected back onto onto god rather than recognizing that it really is part of this fallen world that we live in and a consequence not of God, but of God's willingness for us to have freedom to exercise agency. It's actually agency that is bringing all of this about. And my one comment about the chains is, is it, it seems like you, some of this seems a little uh, familiar when I was on the podcast talking about Lehi's last uh, words. That's right. You know, where he's really trying to like come at this from different angles and at times trying to like shake people and and all of a sudden, the chains definitely has a, has a pretty good imagery associated with it. And there is this sense of, uh, there, you know, like, pay attention, wake up. <laughs> right. Right. Like, okay, if the flax and cords don't bother you, maybe this analogy is one that will catch your attention. So the next verse I want to jump to is verse 30. And I will say that this, this concept has, over time occasionally been frustrating to me but before you jump yeah, there on on verse uh 21 he says and others will he pacify and lull them away into carnal security that they will say all is well in zion yea zion prospereth and, and, and so it's just another one of the other attitudes that satan can use to uh and and don't you love the phrase that he uses with that thus the devil cheateth their souls He's cheating them out of their experience to be connected with God and to really have that beautiful growth and connection that we came here for. I love that. Yeah, and you know, when you, when you live in a fairly well-to-do part of the world today, um, it's 
this is also can be a very easy one to kind of say, well, yeah, there's problems in the world, but, uh, you know, things are just fine. It seems like it's a careful balance, really, between not being, like, I don't know, not being too laid back and not caring, but not getting too caught up in wanting to have control over everything, but to be willing to be striving, be moving forward, but to do it trusting that the Lord can see more than we can and follow his lead on what what we're doing. Yeah, I think for this one, the, probably the big catch is, is that when we have the sense of all is well in Zion, you can almost internal, you can almost substitute all is well with my relationship with the Savior. All is well with my relationship with God. And, and, and that it doesn't really require much additional work or effort. Sure. And then that's the beginning of the dwindling in unbelief. Because I know and I understand and I know all the teachings. Yeah. Like, yes, I agree with that. I believe that. And so we just think, okay, that's enough. That's all we need. And really what Nephi's teaching us is, no, that's not enough. The devil's going to cheat you out of your inheritance that way. Um, okay, are you okay if I go to verse 30? Yes. Okay, so here we get introduced to this concept, I will give unto the children of men, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little, and blessed are those who hearken unto my precepts, and lend an ear unto my counsel, for they shall learn wisdom. For unto that him that receiveth, I will give more. So I mentioned at the start that this concept can sometimes be frustrating for me because I sometimes just wish I could like take it all in now. Just tell me the whole thing. I don't need one step at a time. I just want to see where this is all going or I just want to understand the whole picture. Just let me know. Um, but I lean in and trust God in this. I recognize that he sees more than I do. He knows the sure way to develop and refine his children. And part of what has helped me to find peace in that is that we're not limited because we gain insight in this step-by-step process and that that's how we recognize truth. Because as we, like one of the things he says is, for unto him that receiveth, I will give more. So as we learn and as we lend an ear to his counsel that he will steadily build our understanding and always give us more. He's not holding back from us so much as he's teaching us in a way that we can actually take it in. Yes, and when, when I, when I uh, read this verse, I also start thinking about uh, we're, we're, trying to, we're being taught how to live more in the, in the present moment and not to be so caught up on accumulating knowledge or information but to really, we, we've been given so much and to digest that, receive it, actually start to um, let it uh, enlighten your spirit. And that a, a natural result from that is that the Savior will give you more. Mm-hmm. But don't worry about the future. Don't worry about the more. Kind of take what you have now. And, and- and, and I guess trust that it will come. As you were speaking, it was reminding me kind of what we touched on earlier, which was about being still and that mindfulness being part of that process, like taking the time to actually be present in this very moment and connect with what we do know and understand about God yes. and to trust that more will come. Because the because uh, this verse basically says, for thus saith the Lord God, I will give unto the children of men line upon line. Not True. that the children of men are, are commanded to go seek it or find it, but that it's ultimately given by, by, mm. by the Savior. And the key there, I think, is for those that lend an ear to counsel. So he's willing to share it with us, but are we taking the time to put ourselves in a position to have ears to hear? Yeah, and that, that ties directly back to, to pride and how pride is what gets in the way. True. Okay, we're going to finish off this chapter in verse 32, where um, the Lord says, I will be merciful unto them, saith the Lord God, if they will repent and come unto me, for mine arm is lengthened out all the day long. Which was the verse that I had thought about when you were sharing earlier, that there is this time when the consequences will no longer be withheld from what we're studying. 
Okay, so verse, or I'm sorry, we're going to move on to 2 Nephi chapter 29. And I picked up um, almost halfway through in verse 8. I'm talking about, he says, Wherefore murmur ye because, oh, sorry. Wherefore murmur ye because that ye shall receive more of my word. Like, are you going to really complain? So this is talking about how, People will, in the latter days, reject the Book of Mormon, reject prophets, reject this concept that there is ongoing revelation. So I should have given that as an example. So why, basically, why are people going to complain? Because as God, I'm going to give you more of my word, more understanding. And know ye not that the testimony of two nations is a witness unto you that I am God, that I remember one nation like unto another. So Nephi is teaching us a principle about witnesses and the consistency and steadiness of God. Having more witnesses will strengthen the faith of those looking toward God. And honestly, it may not have an effect one way or the other for those that don't have eyes to see or ears to hear. More witnesses is just more. More more content that isn't really connecting with them. But for those who have faith, it can be a huge blessing. And I was... So this may seem like a really sideways way to look at it but I thought sometimes I murmur when I have multiple witnesses in my own life so I was like having some compassion for people who are maybe struggling with this and it's mostly because this is often accompanied by pain grief or struggle so in my affliction like I have found that when I'm struggling on some level that the Lord blesses me with an affirming witness that his grace is sufficient that he is there every once in a while I'd like fewer of those opportunities because well pain is painful so I thought that was interesting how, I guess the point was that we have these witnesses in our own life too. Like the Book of Mormon, the Bible, our prophets stand as like capital W witnesses to the whole world. But that we have these opportunities in our life to have witnesses of the nature of God and how he works. Part, part of me, is, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about how Nephi has talked about how God is no respecter of persons and kind of treats all people equally and invites all the common to him. And, and, and there, there's a similar theme here, but it's at a bigger level. It's at a level of nations that, okay. that God really isn't a respecter of nations. No, yeah, that's a good point. You know, that's I like he, that. He's a Cause he says uh, in the middle of verse eight to repeat what you said, um, Know you not that the testimony of two nations is a witness unto you that I am God, that I remember one nation like unto another. And that... Yes, and he says right after that, I speak the same words unto one nation like unto another. He doesn't save only special people to have his word. That the chosen people really are the people that choose him. That is, to me, that is the end of what that is. Um, okay. In verse 11, we have, um, he says, For I command all men, both in the east and in the west and in the north and in the south and in the islands of the sea, so we're pretty much covering everything here, right? The whole earth, that they shall write the words which I shall speak unto them. And that, so basically that there is scripture from all these lost tribes, from any nation on the earth that was turning to God, that God will speak and teach them. And that's exciting to think that of the many testimonies and witnesses and experiences that we will someday have the privilege to read and to, to know about these prophets and these groups of people that what, what, what their miracles were and how they had their interaction with God. Um, one question, which is probably a little bit more just directed toward me, like the thought was that it, is it then part of our stewardship to record our own experiences with God, to record the miracles that we witness? Like, is that so much different other than the sphere of our stewardship that we record these things and these experiences with God? So are you okay if we move on to 30 or did you have anything else to cover there? So in verse 30, we are talking about um, sort of as things come together and as um, the restoration continues to roll forward, that people who had previously rejected the Savior, previously rejected the gospel, will once again have an opportunity to, um, 
to partake of that. So we have in verse 2 of chapter 30, the Lord covenanted with none, save it be with them that repent and believe in his son, who is the Holy One of Israel. So as I was looking, because they're talking about Gentiles and Jews and the Lamanites, like we have all these different people, that it seems like it's regardless, which is a theme that we've, this is just continuing our theme, that regardless of our heritage or our genealogy, that our salvation is dependent on our choice. It has much less to do with where, like the accident of where we were born. So I don't and know, I, I like that. And I, and I think that kind of uh, bringing this full circle, it's, you know, bringing the, the mercy back um, front and center and that if you look at kind of so Nephi's looked now at the history of, of the world in particular with his people and then the Savior coming to his people and then things more along with the second coming and the apostasy in the second coming that's kind of also our own experience of especially as members of the church of having kind of feeling very close to the Savior going through periods where you feel like where is the savior and you kind of go through these periods of we wouldn't call it apostasy because it may sound like apostate but having that distance feeling just more distant from god and for sure feeling like the mists of darkness are swirling around they're very difficult to have clarity and to feel connected to the light and and also wrestling with all these lies that the uh, satan kind of pushes through all sorts of channels on us and trying to trying to figure things out and now we're coming to the beautiful part, which is not not the repentance, but the mercy and the grace that comes with it. That we can be restored to those things that we at one point knew before. Yeah. Mm. I really love that concept of seeing within the grander picture each of our journeys and to see, therefore, you know, so many prophets have seen and testified of this great mercy that the Lord will have to gather in his children and to recognize that that very same concept is playing out for us in our individual life. I I really like that. I think that's pretty great. Okay, I'm going to move on to verses 5 and 6. The gospel of Jesus Christ shall be declared among them, wherefore they shall be restored unto the knowledge of their fathers and also to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, which was had among their fathers. So I love how this is pulling into that connection that you made. And then shall they rejoice, for they shall know that it is a blessing unto them from the hand of God, and their scales of darkness shall begin to fall away from their eyes. So, you know, just just a beautiful promise of the restoration. I thought it was interesting that phrase, the scales of darkness falling away from their eyes. It's really like, it's just this, these words create this imagery that is easy to imagine when we do not have eyes to see or when we allow our focus and our perspectives to get drawn away from the lord we literally cannot see the light and i've experienced those times in my life so this is another beautiful example of how the atonement of jesus christ works miracles right within us within our lives and as we're cleansed from sin or darkness or brokenness our perceptions and distortions they 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 become corrected and we're able to see things as they really are again i I like that word distortions because i think about like the scales of darkness and and in one sense you may say well it keeps you from seeing but more likely than not it actually just gives you a more a distorted view of of the world yes and that correcting those distortions is synonymous with having those scales of darkness because I feel like for most of us, Falling. Satan is most effective when it's not 100% a lie or 100% false. That if there's a part of truth that he can then twist or distort, that that is when he is most successful with with the children of men, really. Um, th- then we have all this beautiful imagery of peaceful harmony during the millennium. For example, verse 12, and then shall the wolf dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. We see all this beautiful imagery. So that is amazing. Um, Verse 17, there is nothing which is secret, save it shall be revealed. There is no work of darkness, save it shall be made manifest in the light. And there is nothing which is sealed upon the earth, which... 
uh, save it shall be loosed. So I really look forward to this day because to me, this is all about clarity. The confusion and deception of the world will be halted. We will be able to see with clarity ourselves, each other, and the works of God as they really are. And I like for real cannot wait. Just this concept of things as they really are just seems to be laid out for us here. Well, once again, it's very easy to think about a future day oh, where you can enjoy that. That's a good that. point. That's a good and, point. And it's very easy to get caught up in how imperfect things are today, here and now. But that there is a way to maybe a, a not on the scale you want or what it would like but there is a it's way it's almost like you know me or something <laughs> but there there is a way to partake of that you know and i'm really glad that you brought that up to remind me because the reality is that in this in this restoration time of my life that i do feel a beautiful amount of like calm centeredness and clarity of thought like I do feel like on many levels I am able to see things as they really are in far more abundance than I have before and that's directly connected to oddly enough like being able to see things as they really are doesn't mean that I'm like sort of micromanaging the future and trying to control everything it's like the opposite i just lean in with trust to the savior and the more i do that the more clear things seem to become so thank you for reminding me of that because you're a hundred percent right and i love that and one, one 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 comment is is having been a young younger 20 year old during uh 2001 and then uh uh and then in the financial crisis of 2008 and then you have uh, personally, I've kind of come a ways where, you know, the, uh, uh, whether it be the stock markets and the economics uh, connected to that it was, you know, something that we, we kind of grew up with and, and trying to get a career going in very challenging times. And with the recent events that have happened that have kind of, say, rattled the stock market a little bit and there's other world events around that. It's amazing how much you can feel like, I don't know how this is going to turn out, and it may get a little ugly, and it has been ugly in the past, definitely have gone through some sure. challenging things, and somehow not let that really get to you because you just kind of have this more centered belief that the Savior is going to, is going to take care of you. You don't know how. You, you don't know what's coming, but it is a very, uh, um, I, guess, I guess the irony is, is by kind of turning to the Savior and having that relationship, being a little bit more in the present moment, you actually, by doing that, let go of some of these worries and stresses that are more of related to the future. And maybe that's part of the peace that the Savior delivers to us by leaning into him and by trusting that that path is available for us. And again, I feel like one of the themes that we've talked about today is so many of these blessings are available to us now. We don't have to wait for the millennial day um, and that we can have, you know, that that light and protection and have that fullness um, I just want to end with the last verse in our reading. Satan shall have power over the hearts of children of men no more. And ironically, one of my thoughts here for this was, we don't have to wait for the millennial day for that full protection of the gospel to make it so that Satan no more has room in our heart. Like through our consistent efforts and intentions, like we can eliminate a lot of the handholds that Satan tries to use to find to take up space in our hearts and in our minds and in our thoughts and really recognizing how much humility it takes to be in that spot and to really just lean in. I've, I've, I've used that phrase a lot, but it's one that resonates so much with me to just lean in to the strength of the Savior and to trust him. And it reminds me of a an answer that I've received. I've received this answer to prayer more than once when I find myself distressed by how things seem to be unfolding. And I've heard the Savior's word say, I've got this. And the faith comes in to believe him 
and to accept that. And as I have been super brave and believed him and trusted him in that, the peace that has come with it has been phenomenal. And I love it. Well, it's the peace that surpass, surpasses all understanding, meaning it's not the, the peace that we think of as far as uh, having a comfortable life and kind of having everything you want. Right. And, and that there's no wars and, and outright uh, sure. conflict in the world. That the peace is, is just, it, the peace that the Savior gives transcends, um, transcends that. So, Hunter, th- thank you for meeting with me. You've had the busiest week, and I love that you made time to do this with me. So thank you. You're welcome.